This past Monday, I, I got a podcast in my inbox, and uh, I have to admit that it was a challenging uh, podcast for me. It was an interview with a pastor who was still going strong at 79. And uh, some of you laugh because maybe you're closer to there, but there was a, just listening, there was a passion for Christ, a passion for the church yet, maybe to say it this way, that the things of God still burned in his soul. And, uh, you know, as we get older, we go, how do you finish well like that? I, I think it's a critical question. Uh, just a great example of, of finishing strong. But he was also pointing to a couple of other issues within the church, and one of them centered around a question, and he, and he used, kind of phrased it this way. It was the why question. Matter of fact, let me put up a, a question on the screen. It really refers to that. Why do we do what we do? Here's what he said. The why slips away. It gets lost in the everyday life. For example, even in marriage, I think at times we, we never stop and ponder why we're in a marriage for a bigger purpose. You know, we kind of tend to believe that, well, it's to meet my needs. My wife is supposed to meet my needs and I'm supposed to meet her needs. But if that is the extent of what you believe about marriage, you realize that that is just a, a symbiotic relationship like two ticks sucking each other's blood. Pretty picture, isn't it? That was never Christ's intent for a marriage. But the question is, why church? Why do we meet together? Why did you get up and take a shower this morning? Some of you did, but some of you didn't, maybe. But why did you drive here and come together and be a part of a gathering at 9 a.m.? Do we ever stop and ponder and ask why? See, why do we meet together? I want to put a text on the screen here to begin with that really digs in, really shows us one monumental piece of answering that why we gather together. Hebrews chapter 8, look at how it reads here, verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. Now just stop there a second. You note that the, he's quoting the Old Testament, but here the writer is applying it to the church, okay, for us even today. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor or each one his brother, saying, You know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. That why? Well, let me put a, a phrase up on the screen here. We are the people of God. Just let that soak in just a second. We are the people of God. We are his beloved children. I think sometimes we think we're just these creatures down in this earth and, and we're scurrying back and forth and life gets busy. And do we stop and remember that we are the people of God if we know him as Lord and Savior? 
We are his people. And he invites us to love him in return. But I don't know if you realize that there is actually a dark side to that passage. There's a reality that I don't think we sometimes even consider or maybe we forget. And the dark side is this. There are many people in this world who are not in that family of God. They are not his. Now, it's true, Jesus loves the whole world. God loves the whole world. But it does not mean that everyone is the people of God. Just because he loves does not mean that one is automatically in the family of God. Matter of fact, people who you work with, maybe some of your relatives, some of your friends, they are not his possession. Students, if you're a student here, if you know Christ, you go to school on Monday morning, here's maybe lunchtime, you look across the table and you go, if you know Christ, some of those people are not in the family of Jesus, in the family of God. Do you realize that because we're the people of God, he is setting out to make us more holy, more beautiful? But not everyone is in on that process. And folks, that's a sobering truth. But if we are there, do you know this morning that nothing can separate you from the love of God? You know, we are on a series on the generosity of God, but there's this uneasy reality I think we got to admit to that if we know Christ, we are full, full partakers of his generosity. We are full partakers and it's unique and it's special because we are the family of God. But not everyone lives under the generosity of God. Do we understand that? The full umbrella of his generosity. And as you pause and think, you go, maybe what's the greatest act of generosity by our God? It's this. He saved us. He brought us into a relationship with himself. And he invites us to know him, to experience him, to be with him. If you're following along in the outline, let me just fill in that first blank for you. Just a reminder, what I've been saying is that he has, God has worked to bring us back into a relationship with himself. He has done the work so that we can be in a relationship with himself. Let me put a couple verses just to remind us of this. Look at Revelation 21.3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Isn't that a cool phrase? He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Do you catch that possession piece here? 
Let me put another one, 1 Peter 2.9. For you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, we gather here this morning because we are a called out people. We are his possessions. And that's why we got out of bed. We, some of us took a shower and we come together and we worship him. The idea there that we are his people, it should propel us to worship him more and more. Now, there's a nuance in that first Peter passage. I want to just point this out to you that Understand this, that when you talk about God's possession in 1 Peter there, it's in the plural. It's about an us. It's about a group of people. We are a collection of people who gather to worship God together. We come to our wanting to grow in Christ together. We come to have a relationship with Him in a deeper way together. We look to know the Father and the Son just a little bit more together. A group of people. And as a church, we are called to gather together to show off the generosity of God. Do you realize that really can't be done individually to the extent of what corporate, what, it, what we can do it in a corporate sense? Uh, this idea of Jesus and me, we, we need to get rid of that idea. It, it's Jesus and us, corporately. Well, let me go back to the podcast though, for a second. See, we can forget the why... And even catch this, we can come and actually serve God Sunday morning, Wednesday night, and never stop and ponder what it means to delight in Him, to be comforted by Him. Never feel His mercy even. That's new every morning. See, if you are in Christ, let, let me ask you, do you feel the relational generosity of God flowing into your heart? Or do we have hearts that are a little rigid, hard? Matter of fact, at, at times I wonder if we try to avoid a relationship with him. You know, we just don't want to get too close to him. I think this, even children of God, we that are his, we sometimes look at Jesus and we go, I'm not sure that I want to get up too close to you. Why? And I think sometimes I think we fear rejection for some people, but others, I think it's this, is he might ask me to do something I don't want to do. So we push him relationally away. But let me fill in that next blank here for your notes. Just to summarize what we've been talking about, number two, the God of the universe is profoundly relationally generous. Do we view God's relationality as generous? Look again, Hebrews 8.10. Look 
Look at what it says. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That speaks to the relationality of who God is. Now, understand, this is the church as well. That Yeah, it says Israel, but it's referring also to the church, to us, that the creator of a universe wants a relationship with us, and he wants us to know him as a good father. He's not a distant father. He's a father who pursues us, and his love that just keeps flowing and flowing. As a matter of fact, maybe to write this down, read Psalm 23 again this week. The Lord is my shepherd. And just put it through the lens of God's relationality. I think you'll be stunned at how relational he is and how generous he is in that psalm. He keeps giving and giving and giving. And I don't know if we realize this. We We don't ponder this enough. But relationality, the ability to have a relationship, starts with the Trinity. The Father, the Son, the Spirit in this relationship. And understand this, that it's because of their relationship that love spills out that we can actually have a relationship. It's because of the Trinity. But how about our response to God being a gracious and relational God? Uh, you realize the Bible is filled with lots of invitations and directives to live in relationship with each other. Hebrews 10, don't give up meeting together. I'm not, I don't have it on the screen there. But it does lead, understand, the relationality, the generous relationality of God leads to an application. And there's a question. I, let, let me put it on the screen. It's a, I think it's a harder question than we want to admit. Are we as a church and individually relationally generous? Have you ever thought of it that way? You know, last Sunday, we saw the needs of people, and I applaud what, how we responded. The poor, the widows, the least of these. But here's the deal, I think, if we're really honest, we can respond by giving financially with an abundant degree of generosity and yet be profoundly stingy in our relationships. Matter of fact, we can serve, you can usher, you can be a Sunday school teacher, you can even become a pastor and be profoundly stingy in relationships. Now, I know it goes through people's minds when we hear about, you know, we get pressed into being generous in relationships. I can. I'm an introvert. And I'm an introvert. But, but here's what I've concluded. Just because I'm an introvert doesn't give me the right to be stingy in my relationships. It means that it's going to take more energy. I, I recognize that. And I don't know if you've looked at it this way, but the truth is to actually fulfill the second part of the great commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself, to love your friends, demands a level of generosity in relationship to actually fulfill that. We think of it just as doing things for people, and I'm going, it is way beyond that. It's opening our lives to people, relationally generous. Matter of fact, I think this, 
digging into the scriptures this week, we say that if we appreciate the relationality of God and his deep love in that relationship, and if we're not challenged to become relationally generous toward other people, there is a disconnect there that frankly is the scriptures speak toward. Let me put a passage on the screen, 1 John 4. Look at this, verse 20. If anyone boasts, I love God, and goes right on hating his brother or sister, thinking nothing of it, he is a liar. If we don't love the person he can see, how can he love the God he can't see? The command we have from Christ is blunt. Loving God includes loving people. You've got to love both. Uh, let me paraphrase that. And message is a paraphrase. If anyone boasts that I love my relationship with God and avoids having a relationship with his brothers and sisters, thinking nothing of it, he is a liar. And we've got to catch this, though. We can do things for people, but that does not equal a generous relationship. And here's, the I think, the, the harder part. There are many people who need a generous friendship. People are lonely. People are discouraged. They're broken. They need encouragement. And the hard truth, I think there's more people that want a relationally generous person giving to them than there are people willing to be generous in their relationships toward others. And as I was pondering this, I was going, what gets in the way, though, even for myself? And I have to admit, one of the things that I think gets in the way is that it is far easier to be relationally generous when it comes to our children and our family. And as I was pondering this issue, doing the parenting class, you know, I've been pushing the idea we're called to disciple our children. But in that discipleship, we are called to help our children become relationally generous with others. Beyond the family. That's discipleship and what Jesus wants. See, I think it's easy to be generous with our kids. Matter of fact, I had to wrestle with this even uh, this last, this weekend here. Uh, my daughter-in-law brought one of the granddaughters here to, uh, to Minnesota. You know, they live in Texas now, and they have a retreat going on this weekend. And Jen's here, and she brought Macy, and they came in on Wednesday night. And, and so Deanna are thinking, okay, are we going to get some time with our granddaughter and our, our, our daughter-in-law? I, I, I want her, I want I'd love to have spent time with Macy. We got three hours only. Shouldn't that bug us? <laughs> and we had to go down and meet them. They didn't drive up to meet us. And interesting thing, though, as I was thinking through the weekend, so realization that God's put other women in Jen's life that she's generously giving a relationship to. 
saw one of the evenings where they could have been meeting with us. They're meeting, she was meeting with a Mormon friend and a liberal Lutheran at the same time. And opening up the Bible to talk about what they believe with each other. And really sharing the gospel with these women. But see, what is the call in our lives? And how do we move to that place where we become relationally generous? And I think this, it really starts with moving toward Christ first. And we need to sit and ponder the generosity of God's love and his pursuit of us with the relationship. He is a generous friend to us first. We need to soak that up. He loves us. And I think the challenge for us is we, we wait and we want people to come to us to be generous with us in a relationship. And I go, I don't think so. It's got to start with us going, soaking in God's and it flows through us and we can be able to give to other people a relationship of depth that will actually help them, wherever they're at, walk with Jesus in a new direction and help them to know him, love him, serve him. Can we do that? See, God is relationally generous with us. And there's a call in our lives to do that. But there is another issue in here that i got to tackle for a few minutes. It flows out of the relationship. Look at Hebrews 8.12 again. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Let me fill in the point here, number three. The generosity of God assumes never-ending and generous forgiveness he is profoundly generous in his forgiving getting rid of the iniquities look at some of the verses psalm 103 12 as far as the east is from the west so far does he remove our transgressions from us first john 2 12 i am writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake Here's a cool one, Colossians 2.13. You were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all our sins and he canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. See, if we know Christ as Lord and Savior, he, did, he took away the past sins, he's taken away the present sins, and he nails the future sins to the cross no matter what we do. Now, does he want us to keep sinning? The answer is no. But he is profoundly generous in forgiving and getting rid of the sins in our lives. Now, as I was thinking of this, we have a culture right now that I would, to say it this way, is relationally ungenerous, if you read the news. Social media, man, it is filled with criticism, contempt, anger, trash-talking. And I think this, nothing leads to more contempt in America right now than politics. Isn't that true? I, you know, it's maybe been there all along, and the social media is just bringing out where the hearts have always been. I'm just wondering if that's true. But I think, what would 
Jesus do if he was walking amongst our culture right now? What would he tweet? What would he put on Facebook and like? I'm just not convinced that Jesus would be walking down the paths that at times I find believers willing to walk down. I even think of the way he, he dealt with skeptics and people who didn't know any better, even betrayers at times. He'd forgive them. He was gracious to them. Do you realize the people he did push back against? It was those religious people who were unwilling to be gracious and could not forgive. The religious people. See, God is profoundly generous. Jesus is profoundly generous in his forgiveness. Now, you you know this leads to an application, don't you? (laughs) Look at number four. I think you know this. Because of God's generosity, we are called to be generous in forgiving others. But here's the deal. He set a high bar. A really high bar. Luke 17, look at verse 3. If another believer sins, rebuke that person. Then if there is repentance, forgive. Even if that person wrongs you seven times a day and each time turns again and asks for forgiveness, you must forgive. Now, the the first part of that verse, that one's in reach. Can't we admit that? If your brother sins, rebuke him. Got that one down. Learning that one's pretty easy. Jesus, you should see me. I did this training session on this for my family last night. (laughs) See, but Jesus has a few more things to say. He goes on, if he repents, forgive him. Okay, if he really repents. I mean really repents. If he comes crawling back, okay, then I might forgive him. And Jesus piles it on just a little more. And if he sins against you seven times in the day, and every one of those seven times they come back, I repent. Seven times in one day, and those four words, you must forgive him or her. See, we know by the third or fourth or fifth time that anyone that keeps doing it, they're not really, they don't mean it. Or they wouldn't be keeping doing it. So we think that, how do we look at this? I I think here's how we might want to think about it. Jesus, he can't mean what he's saying, does he? He's just overstating this, you know, like plucking your eye out cutting your hand off. Maybe this is just a hyperbole like that. I don't know if you know that there's another passage that deals with this in Matthew. And Peter tries actually to nail Jesus down. I'm not going to go to the text there. but So he's trying to say, Jesus, how many times do we have to forgive? Jesus had said seven, but he answers him a little bit even more. He goes, not just seven times, but 70 times seven. See, if Jesus is overstating it, in Matthew, he's now overstating an overstatement. 
Why? I think this, he's going, disciples, you can't get away from this one. You can't avoid it. See, Jesus is serious about forgiving, being over the top. Over the top generous in our forgiving people. He's calling us to forgive lavishly, frequently during the day. Now, push it farther, he doesn't demand repentance actually before they even come. I don't know if you know that one as well. I don't have it on the screen. Listen to Mark 11. But when you are praying, first forgive anyone you are holding a grudge against so that your Father in heaven will forgive your sins too. What does it say? It's saying that you begin actually begin to forgive people before they even come and say, I repent. I've done this. See, lavish forgiveness starts before repentance even begins. And these disciples, they were astounded. How can you do this? How can anybody do this, make this happen? And were they trying to pull back and ignore him? Let me show you Luke 17. Back to Luke 17. Look at verse 5, what immediately follows the issue of forgiveness. And the apostle said to the Lord, Show us how to increase our faith. The Lord answered, if you had faith even as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, maybe may you be uprooted and be planted in this sea and it would obey you. The disciples, this lavish forgiveness is impossible and increase our faith. The response of Jesus here, you really don't need more faith. You already have just a speck. So what do you think he's saying here? I think it's really this. Stay with me. Follow me. Do what I tell you to do. And you're going to see trees uprooted, mountains moved, and you will learn to forgive. I think that's what Jesus is saying there. Now, think of normal forgiveness for us, though. Our way of forgiveness. We impose careful preconditions on it, don't we, at times? We insist on full restitution. We look for a change of behavior. We ask for a really sorrowful heart. And we think that's the way to forgiveness. Now, are there other pieces to it? There's other scriptures, yeah, I I know that. But, but I think here, what's Jesus doing? I, I think this. There's a greater issue for Jesus at this point, and it's this. He wants hearts to change, the disciples' hearts to change. So there will be a growing capacity to forgive. See, forgiveness always starts within the heart. Or we will never bestow radical forgiveness if our heart does not change. Really, it's, it's that verse on the wall again. It starts there. A changed heart. That's God-willed, not self-willed. Now, how does it take place? I, I, I think this. I think Jesus goes on. And I won't go to this, the passage here. But it begins by taking a look in the mirror first of our own lives. You look in the mirror, and all of a sudden, if we're really serious, maybe we see that there's a log coming out. 
a stick in our, in our eye. See, look in the mirror. Understand we also are a sinner as well. We've done things bad, evil. But if we don't look in the mirror, there's a, there's a temptation, not a temptation, there's a path that one can head down. Let me read the path of this. Hebrews, I don't have it on the screen again. Let no root of bitterness spring up and cause trouble, and by it many become defiled. See, there's a warning if we do not forgive, that bitterness can twist us, it can poison us. It changes us from the inside out. But, but here, let me press it even farther. Because at times, I, I think we even become frustrated, bitter, angry, because there, sometimes it's not even people sinning against us. It's just things that they've done that we don't like. We really can't point to even a specific sin. It's something they believe. We, we were offended by it. And we can just become bitter. We just take offense at something. But if we claim the right to be angry, it impacts us profoundly. See, anger lies to us. I don't know if we realize that. I just want justice. Well, no, we don't. We want revenge. Jesus comes back and he warns us. He says, watch out, watch out. If bitterness creeps in, you understand anger all of a sudden overtakes our lives. And do you realize that people find it very hard to spend an evening with angry people? Anger, angry, bitter people. And angry people, they become lonely, they become hard, and they become sour. But for forgiveness, it needs to spread into relationships with generosity. And it must start with God. For that bar for us to go there, it starts with God himself. And we need to meet him in a face-to-face relationship where he changes our heart, where he reveals to us how generous he has been and how much he has forgiven us. We must soak that in. And if we're willing, I think this, that the Holy Spirit wants to take us to the foot of the cross. Where we can look at that cross and you see the the scars in his hands from those nails. And as we look at the cross, we gaze at the lavish and profound generosity of Jesus dying for our sins and taking that sin away. Let me put up this scripture to end with here today. Luke 23. Here's the cross, just before the cross, but with loud shouts they insistently demanded that Jesus be crucified. And their shouts prevailed, and so Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released to the man who had been thrown in the prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. Verse 33, And when they came to the place called the skull, 
they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. As we kneel before the foot of the cross, he's looking down with us. And he's already said, Father, forgive you and me. We are part of that crowd. But if we know him, if you are his child, he has lavished forgiveness on us. Profound generosity. Now, let me close it by this way. There might be people in here who have never experienced the generosity of God's forgiveness. You've never come to that place where you've accepted him as Lord and Savior and acknowledged that he died for your sins, that you were separated from him. And if that's you this morning, can I encourage you that the path that you need to walk is to give your life to Jesus and surrender to his profound generosity in forgiving you of those sins. But if you know him, what does it mean to walk out of this place and gaze at the cross and go, God, help me to be generous in forgiving people? And I would suspect that all of us can point to some people that we hold on and just go, oh, we struggle with forgiving them. We understand that. But he wants to set us free like never before. He wants us to become generous people that forgive profoundly. Let's stand and pray.